I'm going to read 15 through 18 in Psalm 103. I'd like to ask Abraham if he would pray for God's blessing on the word. <clears throat> Psalm 103 and verse 15. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the loving kindness of Jehovah is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his precepts to do them. Let us pray. <clears throat> In Jesus Christ we are grateful that we can be here and listen to that word. We are grateful that we have and strength and time and things that we can help us to come and be here. This evening we're going to be looking at the 15th verse. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. <clears throat> Little bunny foo-foo, hopping through the forest, scooping up the field mice and bopping them on the head. Down came the good fairy and said, Little bunny foo-foo, I don't like what you're doing, scooping up the field mice and bopping them on the head. If you don't change your ways, I'm going to turn you into a goon. Bunny Fufu thought a minute and then said, oh well, hair today, goon tomorrow. I think my wife uh, iterated that to our children and, and our daughter to her children and her daughter to her children. And it's always been amusing and comical and fun. But seriously, we read the phrase in the scriptures at least 54 times in the word of God. Three simple words, and he died. Nine times almost immediately between Adam and Noah, and he died, and he died, and he died. One has well written, the child of God alone of all the children of men can afford both to hold the world at its real value and to let it go as of no value. And he died is written of all men. The only exceptions being Enoch and Elijah. Amid the many changes of the world, and there are many, and the longer you live, the more changes you will witness, the more changes you will be brought under, the more changes you'll have to deal with. 
But amid the many changes of the world and the passing away of its generations, when you get older, you've got a whole lot more time to look back on and you realize how things have changed and things that you realize that you thought were stable, things that you thought always were. I'll give just a small example of a soda fountain in a drugstore. I just assumed that all drugstores had soda fountains because they did in the 50s, but I found it's not the case. Things just change. Every, every generation, every decade, every year really, many times in many things. How desirable, how necessary, how delightful is it to possess enduring realities. We have the privilege through God's grace to possess enduring realities. We don't have to be concerned about changes because our God changes not. His compassions fail not. We can look forward to the enjoyment of everlasting happiness, such as the substantially the possession and the gladdening prospect of the true believer. And it's sad, isn't it, that we have to use that adjective, true, but the reality even in the scriptures is that there are false believers. This is a reality for the true believer. I mentioned this morning in Sunday school about coming in possession of a short story called The Celestial Railroad by Nathaniel Hawthorne. <clears throat> and on the heels of all that had gone on in the city of destruction, if you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, and the uh, horrific journey that Pilgrim went on, but also the blessed conclusion of that account, and then his wife and children following in part two. But Nathaniel Hawthorne writes this short story about the city of destruction. And Pilgrim, who became Christian, had realized that the city was destined for destruction from the wrath of God. He'd been reading some book that told him that. But he was fleeing from the city of destruction. He was fleeing from the wrath of God to come. But these people decided that rather than go on that terrible journey, they had heard about Christian and all that he had experienced falling into the slew of despond and having to encounter Apollyon and then the episode in, in Doubting Castle and giant despair beating him and, and almost to death and so on. All those challenges, all those terrible experiences and even faithful being martyred in the town of Vanity when they went through that town and were taken to prison and so on. So these people decided we're not going to go through that. We've got a better way to get to the celestial city. We're going to build a railroad. And that's what this short story is all about, this railroad that they built that went direct from the city of destruction to the gates of the celestial city. Never mind the slew of despond. Never mind all those troubles. Never mind repenting. Never mind being concerned about God. Just get on the railroad and it'll take you straight, a straight line to the celestial city. 
And that's the theme, and, and it's really something worth reading to make you just think about the privileges of being in Christ, make you think even more, and make you think a lot less of some of the trials and tribulations that you've come through in your life and perhaps are still going through. But at any rate, uh, he alone, that is the true believer, of all the children of men can afford both, as we've already uh, stated, to hold the world at its real value, to understand what the world is really worth and the many things that are worth absolutely nothing, to hold it at its real value and to be able, because of that, to let it go because it's of no value. Somebody said years ago that we come into the world as infants, of course, with our hands grasping like this, clenched, wanting everything. And we go out of the world with our hands opened, wanting nothing. That's what the world is. That's what it provides. This true believer, he alone, can take joyfully the spoiling of his goods by oppressors. He can take the spoiling of his health by sickness, the spoiling of his strength by age, the despoiling of his life by death, knowing in himself that he has in heaven and in God a better and an enduring substance. The man of the world labors through fear of the discovery to conceal the inscription which is, which is written on all things here below. Tries to hide the fact that it's all going to end in death. Tries to pretend that it's not going to happen to him. Tries to pretend that it doesn't matter, he doesn't care. He believes in annihilation perhaps. The true believer, contrary-wise, labors to decipher its various letters and courageously gives utterance to the universal maxim which they contain. The universal maxim, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. We read that, of course, in Ecclesiastes. There are about 59 occasions of the word vanity being employed in the Old Testament, and almost half of them are in the book of Ecclesiastes. We read the words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. That's how the book of Ecclesiastes begins. And vanity is the conclusion reached in the end of the book as well. And the dust returneth to the earth as it was, and the spirit returneth unto God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. What is vanity? In the book of Ecclesiastes, well, I'd recommend, uh, I assume it's available, through our office, the 
Chuck's study on the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity. Is it not futility? There are many synonyms for vanity, but is it not, is not one of them futility? Vanity, that's just vanity. It's uh, worthless, useless, futile. One translation of the passages referenced. Read the words of Colette, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. <clears throat> I'm sorry I started reading the, the other one first. One translation has it this way. Life is fleeting. It's obviously a modern translation. Life is fleeting like a passing mist. It is like trying to catch hold of a breath. All vanishes like a vapor. Those aren't bad thoughts regarding what vanity and futility is, are they? It's like a vapor. It's like trying to catch hold of a breath. You ever try to catch your breath and bring it back? It's like trying to catch a breath. And everything vanishes like a vapor. Everything is a great vanity. And their, their rendition of chapter 12 and verse 8. Life is fleeting. It just slips through your fingers. We hear that a lot about things slipping through our fingers, do not. All vanishes like mist. Futility and emptiness. Vanity of vanities. Those words, those thoughts are often used of anything that's evanescent, ephemeral, transient, frail. It made me think of uh, standing in the hot sun on a hot summer day, and it doesn't matter whether you're in South Carolina or Michigan, the days in the summer are often hot. Standing on a hot summer day, sweating, and for some unknown reason, a, a cool little waft of, of a air comes passing by, and it, it refreshes, but then it's gone in a moment. I know I've experienced that. I don't have any explanation, but it felt good. But the point I'm making is that it's gone in a moment. There it was, and it's gone. A wisp of breeze on a hot summer passes by, and then it's gone. We're here, and we're gone. David is teaching us. As for man, his days are as grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. Like grass. Whether you mow it or not, it doesn't last forever. All you have to do is wait for winter. And again, even in South Carolina. And the days turn cold and the grass turns brown. It happens every year. Man, his days are as grass. We're going to go the way of all grass, you might say. His days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. Men take much pride, do they not, in how they flourish? Many of them think that they are some kind of a flower, some kind of uh, something that's going to last forever. A beautiful flower, but it doesn't last. It flourishes and then it dies. Some bulbs, I think my wife was telling me recently, they come up 
one day and then they die at the end of that day and that's it. That's it for that plant. Man is like a flower, David says, that flourishes. And he doesn't even have to say and then dies because we all know that it does. And we all know that all mankind die. David here in this beautiful Psalm 103 of praise unto God places side by side the special benefits, the special benefits. He's been blessing and praising God throughout this Psalm for the marvelous gifts, the immeasurable benefits, the manifold benefits, the grace of God, the forgiveness, all the things that God has provided for his people, he's praising him for. All these things that are granted to believers through grace. Illustrated in these verses. Illustrated by the height of God's mercy. The breadth of his forgiveness. And the depth of his pity. He begins here to speak of the length of his love. In everlasting benefits. The grass comes and goes. The flower flourishes and goes. But he speaks, as we'll see in the next few weeks, of everlasting benefits and putting them alongside, juxtaposing them with a contrast that is immense. Namely, the nothingness of man and the brevity of human existence on earth. The brevity of our lives. David cried out in Psalm 51. You'll remember that that's a psalm of repentance. Famous or infamous. Whichever way you want to look at it. Regarding David's repentance for his sin with Bathsheba. And murdering her husband Uriah. But he cries out in the midst of that psalm. Create. In me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. This humble prayer of repentance after God confronted him with his sin, confronted him through his servant, his prophet Nathan about his sin and brought him to repentance. He humbled this king of Israel. Humility. I believe that it's likely that David wrote Psalm 144 after he wrote Psalm 51. And I'm suggesting that it's the result of this declaration, then will I teach transgressors thy way. If you want to turn to Psalm 144, in a lot of ways it seems parallel to our 103rd Psalm in the thought of David and the utterances of the psalmist here in Psalm 144. He even begins... Blessed be Jehovah, 
Blessed be Jehovah. We begin 103 with, Blessed Jehovah, O my soul. David begins 144 with, Blessed be Jehovah, my rock, who teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdueth my people under me. He praises God for what he has made himself to David. He has become all these things to him. He's his rock. It makes us think as believers of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that rock was Christ. Paul teaches that rock in the wilderness. But David says, Jehovah is my rock. He's his war teacher, if you will. Teaching his fingers to fight. He's his loving kindness. He doesn't say, understand, he doesn't say here that God showed him loving kindness, which he certainly did. But he said, he is my loving kindness. He embraces it like that. He's my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, my shield. Only the child of God can, can embrace these things in those terms. My God, my Lord, my rock, my loving kindness, and all these blessed things that God has made himself to his people, meeting their needs, their every need, their eternal needs. All these grand metaphors in loving description of Jehovah. These blessed metaphors of rock and war teacher. Loving kindness and fortress and high tower. Deliverer, shield, refuge. One who subdues his enemies. All these glorious metaphors. And after recounting all that God is... He is brought to face a question. And he raises that question to Jehovah. In verse 3, Jehovah, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him? Or the son of man that thou makest account of him? Man is like to vanity, a breath. His days are as a shadow that passes away. David asked this question of his God. Have we not asked that question of God many times? What is man that thou art mindful of him? What is man that thou even takest knowledge of him? Why do you even care about me? Why do you care for me? And even more intimately, why do you love me? So much so that you've given your only begotten son to lay down his life at Golgotha for me, to suffer for me, to go through all that time on earth, to become Emmanuel, God with us. What is man that thou hast done all this for any of us? And who am I? What am I? Why me, Lord? 
I imagine, I trust even, that everyone, every one of us, every true believer has asked that many times. Why? Why have you chosen me? And David asked this question, Jehovah, what is man that thou dost take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that thou makest account of him? The son of man, a lesser, a lesser term even than the first term man. This is just the son of man, something less, but you make account of him. This, this individual that's like to vanity, that's just here today, and gone tomorrow. That's like a shadow that passes away. The dust returneth to the earth as it was, and the spirit returneth to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. Why, why waste our time? We're just going to die. God took all kinds of time for us. He has taken knowledge of us and he has met our eternal needs through the gift of his dear son, his darling son. And we ask that question, why? Why are you mindful of me? And when we ask that question, our reflexes ought to say, I should spend all of my time and effort and strength and love and desire to be mindful of you, God. Yes. David has declared that that man returns to the earth. David declares that he's like grass, that he's like a flower that flourishes like a passing blossom. But how many men understand that? How many men realize that? So many men don't seem to live as though they believed that. My memory brought back to me a fellow pipe fitter. <coughs> I didn't know him well because he was on days and I couldn't hang on a day shift very much. But he was a middle-aged, very muscular man and was proud of that brawn. And there were stories going around about how he could pick this up and pick that up. Almost no effort. He had a part-time job. He was a bouncer in a bar. And some of the fellows that I knew that were aware of that place that he worked said, you don't want to mess around with that bouncer. He was a muscular man, strong, and he enjoyed using that strength. Well, evidently, closing this bar one night with the owner had a little bit too much of the, of the bar's product himself. Headed on home down the road. There's kind of for my wife and I, a famous double curve on North Territorial Road, two 90-degree turns, one after the other. Harry didn't make it. Harry didn't make it. And they found him underneath his truck. It rolled. 
he was thrown out and it rolled on top of him. Harry could not push that truck off of himself. All his vaunted strength and power was like a wisp, was like a, a flower that flourisheth and then is gone. Men are proud. Men are proud and God's people are called to be humble. Teach us, O oh Lord, to number our days, Moses wrote, that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. I don't know if Harry ever read that or heard it, but it was a word fitting for him and many, many others, many other men. Teach us to number our days. Jehovah is everything. God is everything, man is nothing. But he has been pleased to give his everything, to give his all, that we might have all, that we might be called the children of God through the spirit of adoption. Man is nothing. It's enough to, <clears throat> it's enough to make one think that our praise and worship is nothing in comparison to what it ought to be. Oh, Lord our God, we need help to praise thee as we ought, to worship thee as we ought. Man is just a passing shadow, ephemeral, lasting but a day. The man in Christ is everything because Christ is everything. He has all things because Christ has all things. Without Christ, we can do nothing. We are nothing. But we are, in Christ, possessors of all things through the grace of our God. I believe this is a clarion call of a trumpet. I guess that's some kind of doubling up because a, trumpet, a clarion is a trumpet, I found out. But nonetheless, this is a clarion call to the people of God for humility to recognize how great our God is, how immense is his loving kindness, how immense is his holiness, how immense is his love, never-ending love, eternal love, his everlasting covenant, his infinitude, he is, is he not, all in all. And by his grace, we shall be among his all in all. Remember also thy creator, the writer of Ecclesiastes penned, remember also thy creator in the days of thy youth before the evil days come and the years draw nigh. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we do thank thee and praise thee that thou did place thy love upon us for reasons we don't anticipate ever knowing. But we do thank thee and praise thee and ask for thy help to continue <coughs> thanking thee and praising thee. We thank thee for the privilege, Father, of gather, gathering week by week with thy people to especially praise thee together. 
We thank Thee for all Thy mercies, and we thank Thee for Thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whose infinite merit all these things flow unto us. We praise Thee, O Lord our God, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stand for the benediction. It's taken from Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite.